I want to live based a life on desire, deep, soulful desire, not surfacey desire, soulful desire, being true to who I am so that my insides match my outsides so that who I am is integrated, no longer fragmented. And that naturally led me to coming home to who I am, which is a very sexual person and a very generous person. I love to give in all kinds of ways. Welcome back to another episode. I am super excited to have Nicole Mitchell with me today. She is a pastor, former pastor turned stripper and life coach. And I've been wanting to do an episode about this topic for a while, which is religion and sexuality and how they intersect. And in particular, the way that organized religion can sort of leave us traumatized when it comes to our sexuality and how we how we undo that and move into sexual freedom and liberation. So really excited to have you on, Nicole. And um, I'd love to hear a little about your own journey, um, maybe starting from when you were young in terms of religion and sexuality. What, what was that world like for you? Oh my goodness. I'm so excited we're having this conversation. Like I just, my hope and intention is that it resonates with people it sets people free. It gives them permission. It gives them breakthrough. So thank you so much for having this conversation. Um, yeah. So for me, I grew up in a very conservative religious household. I grew up Baptist um, and very much wanted to be a good girl, like just wanted to be that good girl that my parents would love and my pastors would be, would approve of and very quickly learned. And it was more caught than taught about what it means to be a girl and what a girl is allowed and not allowed to do. And as someone who's really driven, I absorb those messages like a sponge and I tried to be exactly what they needed me to be. So I wore the modest clothing and I tried hard to bite my tongue. So I'm a leader, but in the denomination group, women are not allowed to be leaders. We are, we're only allowed to be in the kitchen or in the nursery Weird not to be seen uh, or heard were meant to serve behind the scenes. So I tried so hard to be that version um, that they needed me to be, that they told me to be. And it wasn't until my late 20s that I was introduced to a church where women were equal to men. That was like a radical thought for me, which like blows my mind. I'm saying this in the 21st century, God help us. But I, there was the first church that taught me that. And I felt validated. I had these feelings and it's so many questions throughout my whole life, but I was never allowed to ask questions. My job was to submit and be the right wife, the right mother, the right role model, whatever. Um, and so then I started asking questions, lots and lots and lots of questions. And the pastors at that church were like, Nicole, do you realize you're a theologian? And I remember saying to them, I can't, I'm a mom. I'm a woman and I've not been to seminary. And they said here, that doesn't disqualify you. Like you're called, you're gifted. So they started training me up to be a leader and a pastor of a church. And I was like, my mind was blown. I was thrilled. I always called myself a motivational speaker. Um, 
because I couldn't speak to men otherwise because I'm, I'm a woman. So I really found my flourishing there as a speaker and as a pastor and eventually became really disillusioned with that church specifically with religion as a whole and ended up walking away and had no idea of what I would end up becoming or end up doing, but oh my goodness, I love it so much. Ah, yes. And we're going to get to, to that, to what you do now, but before we do, I'm wondering, um, it was so eloquent what you said about being a good girl and really wanting to gain the approval of the people around you and the people, the leaders in the church, but also your family, I'm guessing. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to how, how did that show up in your sexuality? Was it, I have to stay a virgin until I'm married. I can never admit to having sexual feelings. Like what was your experience of your sexuality and then if you can speak a little bit to what you saw in the boys around you. Yeah, I, yeah, there was, a, this is the midst of the purity culture movement. And I was like the purity culture movement child, poster child. I so badly, again, wanted to do what was right. And um, was like, I'm going to stay a virgin. But I was also a teenager with raging hormones. I remember describing myself in eighth grade as one giant hormone with two little feet. Just, I just ready to pounce anyone, anything. And I just did not know what to do with those urges. Um, and so, you know, halfway through high school, I lost my virginity and felt like a failure. And because of the indoctrination of, you know, your virginity is like basically your worth. So because I gave my virginity away, which I think is a total social, social contract and not a real thing, but I believed it was a real thing back then. And because I lost it, gave it away, whatever you want to say, I thought I was worthless. So then I was really reckless, never used protection, never cared about like speaking up for myself or my safety because I thought, well, if I've done the worst, I deserve the worst. It was just horrible, horrible, horrible results of religious trauma. Um, but then I went the other extreme because, I, again, I just want to be that good girl and I became celibate for six years. So all throughout college, I never dated anyone, never touched anyone, never kissed anyone. And, and so for till two years after I was so committed, I'm like, nope, I was taught that if I wait, my husband will just appear, um, which is hilarious. How, like, how are you going to get married if you're not dating? But I, I left that to Jesus. Jesus, you figure that out for me. Um, this doesn't even include of how I denied my own orientation. I had been taught from a little girl who I'm allowed to like. I was taught I'm only allowed to like boys. So it wasn't until my early 30s that I realized I'm not even straight. I'm queer. I'm pansexual. And it's like, so I, there's a word, there was a lot of anger there for years where I felt like I lost so much of my innocence. Having sex as a teenager is not bad or wrong. It's natural and normal. And I wish that could have been normalized and I'd been equipped with the tools to have safe and healthy sex. Um, and then I could have had so many amazing experiences with people of different genders, but I couldn't because I had been indoctrinated to think that I'm only allowed to like boys. Wow. So first of all, I love that you used that word indoctrinated because it does very much feel like that. And what I've noticed with my clients who have religious trauma is there's almost like a policing of your thoughts. It's not just your actions. It's, I feel guilty about what I think about. I feel guilty about what I want. I feel guilty about my urges to your point. And that's the part that feels extra toxic to me of all of our urges are natural and sacred. And what we do with them 
is our responsibility, right? That's where our integrity comes in and that's where our choice comes in. But to police what people are thinking feels just unfair and dangerous. And I'm wondering, you know, in that that phase when you were a teenager, and by the way, good for you, Robin sucks. Um, did you were you keeping this a secret from your family? Like, how did this affect you mentally and, and spiritually in terms of I'm imagining a real split between what I'm doing and how I'm feeling and then what I have to present to feel accepted or loved at home and in the church. How did that work in terms of your your did you have a secret life? Like what was this, what was this like? Yeah, it was secret. Um because I was doing something that was wrong. So I had a lot of shame over it, a lot of guilt over it. I knew if my parents went out, they would be really upset and I would be punished. Um, and I remember one time they caught me out with boys and I don't know if they ever ever knew marijuana was part of the occasion, but they grounded me for like 10 months. Like this was just like, this is how, (laughs) this is how it was done back in the day. And so I remember thinking, okay, now I don't have like any freedom outside of school and home. It's all I'm allowed to do but they can't control what I do at school. So I was like, I'm going to date anyway. So I have like school boyfriends, but even then if I tried to sneak out, yeah, it was sneaking out and it was secretive, Um, which again, just so unfortunate because I think that that creates a chasm between kids and their parents and something I'm committed to as a mom of three to do it so differently and not not be the initiator of a chasm. I want to be the bridge. I want to intentionally reach and try to connect with my children, make them feel safe, make them feel like they don't have to hide because hiding is never good. And when you're a teenager and you have high hormones and high emotions and you're scared and you're kind of reckless, like secrecy never adds good things to that equation. So I just want to do it so differently as a parent because of the hard things um, and the loneliness and the guilt I lived with for years from my upbringing. That's the thing that I my attention goes to is the lone, the, the, that experience of isolation and loneliness and the, the furtiveness, right. That I can't tell anyone about this or get any guidance, or if anyone found out, they would think I was bad. And, you know, a lot of our clients, um, we talk about first masturbation experiences and it's like, get it done really fast in case someone walks in, right. Get it done really fast in case I get caught. And the the feeling of I'm sort of being bad or there's something wrong with me mixed with do it really, really fast. And then that can lead to sexual patterns later on of doing it really fast because that's how your body was sort of trained, um, whether it's self-pleasure or something else, because there's that sort of fear hanging over you of not only is it I'm bad and wrong, but it's also what if someone catches me? And if someone catches me, I'm going to be punished. 10 months is almost a year. And that wasn't even, you know, that was just sort of being, being out with boys. I think that's a good example of how severe it can actually be in, in these religious um, settings. And, and it's not just Christianity. I started out part of my journey was helping survivors of sexual abuse who were primarily in the Hasidic Jewish tradition so a lot of rabbis, a lot of, um, you know, people at the the Jewish schools and I'm Jewish myself. And I was sort of stunned to have my eyes open to how rampant it was. And I, I'm curious in, you know, because you, you are also a coach now and you work with lots of people. I've, I've always had this question of, do you think that abuse is more rampant in the more insular closed communities, such as 
you know, Christian communities or Amish or Mormon or, or the, the sort of more closed religious communities. Do you think that sexual abuse is more rampant because it's so tamped down and so um, held in, pent up? Or do you mm. think it's the same in the secular world? Yeah, that's a good question. I think wherever there is secrecy, shame flourishes. And I, so I think it's a perfect breeding ground for abuse and toxicity and harmful interactions and harmful ways of being. And then you add in this, this other level of the indoctrination of punishment that who you are is unworthy. First of all, so who you are is this inherently worthy of punishment. You're worthy of hell is what I was taught as a little girl, which is like utterly heart crushing. Never tell a little kid they're worthy of hell. Um, and then anytime we got caught by parents, by leaders, authority figures, we have this knee jerk reaction of getting caught. So then we turn to things in secrecy, which never breeds good things in ourselves or in communities, and especially in really tightly closed or tightly monitored communities. Um, to this, to where this day in my mid thirties, I still have to remind little Nicole, she's not going to be punished. I still have moments where I catch my old reflex of looking over my shoulder metaphorically, like, Oh, when's this coming back to bite me? When's this gonna, when am I going to pay big time for this? Because that was so indoctrinated in me. And it takes, I think it takes a lifetime, unfortunately, of unlearning these toxic ways of being and these harmful interactions with one another. Yeah. I want to start to, to hear about that because you are such a good example of someone who has really worked and I think achieved a certain level of, of freedom from these indoctrination patterns. And I think that there's, you know, there's different levels and degrees, but uh, because you're an OnlyFans star, I don't know if you like the word star, but I think it, I love it pretty accurate. Yeah. Because you're an OnlyFans star, you're not only right with your sexuality, you're being seen in that. And that that feels like a whole other level of, you know, healing, essentially healing. And so I'm curious, how did you, how did you get there? How did you go from wanting to be the good girl being, being indoctrinated to breaking free of that? Was it painful? Did you lose relationships along the way with family, with, with friends, people you grew up with? How did you do that? Yeah, I think we have a choice. We have a choice to be either a good girl or a free woman, a good boy or a free man, a good kid or a free person. And it can't be both. And so I reached a point where I was tired of being the good girl and I had been harmed that even I tried my hardest to be good. I was still punished. So at that point, I just wanted to be free. And so then I make choices about based on the identity of what would a free woman, a free person do in the situation. And really me coming to this point in my life was just me returning to my desires as a kid. I remember being elementary or my late elementary, early middle school thinking, I want to be a stripper. And I very quickly learned that not all my girlfriends have that, not a single girlfriend had that same desire. And I'm like, how does like, that's not a thing. Like who doesn't want to dance and take off their clothes? I don't like, I don't. So like it was literally programmed into my destiny and DNA because it has been there since I was a little girl. I remember being in eighth grade watching Titanic and they do that pan across Kate Winslet's naked body. And I was like, I want to be her. Someone lay me on a couch naked and draw me like eighth grade, 13 years old. Who thinks like that? Nicole does. So me doing this online adult work 
is very much returning to those desires I had as a girl. And it's been really beautiful to come home to them and call them good after calling them bad and wrong my entire life. And what's really interesting is my work on OnlyFans has aided me in my healing. So I did enough like inner work to get on there. But then during my time on there, I've reached whole new levels of freedom and healing precisely because of the people in that container, because of that platform. And I love that. It's not all in you to figure out by yourself. You can actually do in community, in process, doing all the sexy things. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by that. Um, that knowledge. I, I just, I love those stories of synchronicity and just the inner knowing of when you're really young and then you end up doing something like that later. Um, and the, the knowledge of that, I'm curious, did that inform, you, you know, I guess what I'm asking is you knew that in, inside. And so it was so, sort of always something that you were probably repressing. And how did you, you know, make the choices to get free was it just by yourself? Did you have mentors? Was there inspiration for you? I'm, I'm just curious, like how you actually, how you actually did that, particularly with respect to um, your relate your relationships with people, right? Because this would have been this would have impacted. I'm imagining relationships with your parents or with loved ones in your community. How did you navigate that? Was it by yourself? Did you have mentors? Yes, I totally had mentors and <clears throat> I'm always preaching, get a mentor, get a mentor, get a mentor. Do not go on your journey alone when there's amazing humans here to support you, especially those who are where you want to be, those who have what you want, hire those people, get them in your corner. They're going to expedite your process to getting there. That's how I've gotten where I am. I just hire one, like I just keep hiring the right next person, the right next opportunity. I, I say yes. And it's led to these really amazing results in my life. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So when I was in the process of becoming a leader at my church, every time my family came over, I had to hide all my books because all the, the theology books were about women being equal and women being allowed to preach and be a pastor. That wasn't acceptable in my family. So you can imagine if I'm afraid for my family to see me have books about preaching, how they would probably respond to me doing adult work. Like it's, so far from what they would ever want for their child. And I have so much compassion for my family because they're the product of their times, of their context. A lot of us had families and parents like that. Um, so I have a lot of compassion, but it's still really hard. And um, and I, I joke um, that I keep becoming everything they never wanted me to be, right? Like first I came out as queer, which isn't acceptable. And then I ended up leaving not only the church, but my religion. Um, and then I started my adult work online and then I got divorced. So once that all added up, it's like these poor people, it probably looks like I'm trying to be a rebel and break all the rules. And it's just me simply returning to who I am. And I think had I been raised differently, this would be totally differently. I would have known my queerness from a young age. I would have started my adult work probably as soon as I was 18. Um, I would probably have never gotten married. Like this is me just undoing the layers of who I was taught to be. So yeah, right now um, to protect any chance of a relationship with my family, we have very strong boundaries. We don't communicate. Um, I've laid my terms out and condition, terms and conditions out like for you to spend time with me or my family. These are the conditions. And conditions you have to love and accept me for who I am until that day. 
you don't have access to me and my family. But the moment you love and accept me for who I am, you're in the door. Um, and that's been really, it was really hard, but it's been really healing to honor my boundaries and only let people on my island who fully love support and cheer me on. If you are not that person, you don't even make it across that bridge. You are on the other side until you become one of my people. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that because I, I do think that there's, <laughs> I see clients with confusion and uncertainty around like, how do I navigate this part of my life or this group? this group of people that knew me when, right. That knew me when I was more repressed, when I didn't believe the things I believe now, or when I wasn't the person that I am now, when I was still essentially oppressing most of who I actually am. And, and the truth is that sometimes people aren't going to be able to meet us in our truth. And that's when boundaries are called for. So I really appreciate you laying that out and saying the terms and conditions are that you love and accept me as I am now. If you can't do that, then you don't have access to me and my family. You know, I think that's a really important one too, for you as a mother, that you are protecting the sacredness of your children and your children's sexuality, for example, that no, you get to grow up in a free home. You get to grow up in a home where you're allowed to express and explore and be loved in that, not around people who are are going to bring that shame cloud, <laughs> bring that shame cloud in with them, which you can feel and, and it's expressed through communication and behavior and all of that stuff. So thank you for speaking to that. I, that makes it a lot more clear of like, how the hell did you do that? I don't understand how that worked. Um, and can I read, can I read something? Sure. I think I might, it'll help your listeners. So yeah. Here's the thing. If we don't want our children to have the experiences we had, we have to be the change agent. We really wish it'd be our parents who would change, society who would change, but it's on us. So uh, the way I was raised was love, 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 love. But the moment I was not who they needed to be, needed to be, they withdrew that love and I was punished or I was isolated, excluded. It was the most harmful thing. It's one of the most harmful things a child can experience outside of direct abuse. It's just like back and forth. You're worthy of love for a moment, but as soon as you do something we don't like, we punish you by pulling away and isolating it's you. It's conditional yes. love. It's conditional upon these factors. If you do it this way, you will be loved. If you don't do it this way, you will not be loved. And that's really hard because it makes you feel like I'm not inherently worthy. I'm not inherently worthy of love. I must do things or be things in order to be loved instead of just I'm loved and I'm figuring out my life. Yes, I totally, totally agree. It's, it's interesting because it is in my religion. All they preach was unconditional love, but the actual demonstration and implementation from the people in my church and my family, it's a very conditional love. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a, I don't, can you swear? Can I not swear? Okay, it's, it's a mind fuck. So I've been taught that the, the definition of unconditional love is actually conditional love. So which is it? So I've had to unlearn and figure out for myself, what does conditional love look like for me? What does unconditional love look like for me? And I'm going to be the demonstrator of that. I can no longer look to these people for what love looks like because of the conditions placed around it, because it toggles back and forth all the time and it's exhausting and it's traumatic. And I want something differently. So for example, I've, I have family members who are very against who I am and what I do, but still want access to my children. And 
I don't want the same thing to happen to them. Right now, my kids are kids. They're easy to love. But if my kids end up becoming queer or end up doing any kind of job that they don't approve of, they're going to do the exact same thing to them and withdraw their love and punish them. And it's been so traumatic for me. I refuse to let that happen to my children if I can make a difference. So I wrote this email and Glennon Doyle, the author of the book Untamed, one of my favorite books. She's one of my favorite authors. Her book and words helped me write this. But I, and I want to share it with your readers because I think I was able to do this because Glennon shared her words with me. And I want to share my words with everyone so they have words and tools for family members who are not accepting of them. And you want to be that change agent for generational patterns. So here's our role. Dear so-and-so, whoever you are addressing in your family, thanks for your email. A few things have to happen before a visit can take place. So this is specifically family members asking to come spend time with me and my kids. I understand you're afraid of what the future looks like for me and the kids. I know it's out of deep love and care that you worry. But fear and worry, fear and worry are not the highest expressions of love. In fact, when placed on other people, it's a burden. And I, my kids, do not deserve that burden. This is a hard path for all of us. Fear and worry and judgment does not make it easier. It makes it harder and lonelier. And it's my job to protect my kids and make sure their journey is not made harder or lonelier by someone else's fear and worry. So no, you can't come. You can't come until you work through your fear and worry and come to a place of being able to love me and my kids in a way that feels like love to me and them. And that would look like wild acceptance and celebration of the new shape of our family. Me, a divorced woman who is dating and and exploring her becoming. No one replaces my ex, but whoever I end up with will be part of my life and the kids' lives. And we will build a true and beautiful family and home. And I hope that one day soon you will be able to come enjoy it. But until then... We cannot be the ones to teach you that you can love and accept us. We don't have a problem with our family, and I want you to come to us as soon as you don't either. I love you both. Go figure it out. And once you have nothing but love and celebration for us, you can come visit, but not a moment sooner. Love, Nicole. Oof, I got shivers. Oh, I got shivers. I love that. And not a moment sooner. And Oh, the part about the burden. It's just, yeah, really well said. And yeah, I love the, also, I just love the simplicity of go figure it out, go figure it out. This is figure outable. You can do this. It's on <laughs> I, you. I won't be the one to do it, but I'm available once you've done it. <laughs> that's exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, um, okay. So let's, so let's, go move forward in your journey. Okay. So you, you exit the, the religion essentially. It sounds like it was sort of step-by-step, right? Exiting that church and then exiting the religion. And then when did you start your OnlyFans and how did you, um, make your dream happen of becoming a stripper? (laughs) Like, was that after, was it during, how did, how did all of that work and how did that kind of affect you in your sexuality, in your, in your journey? Yes. Great question. You know, when people hear my tagline pastor turned stripper, it sounds like an overnight thing. Like I left the church yesterday and I'm in the strip club today. Like, but it was a longer journey. I left, um, the church in summer of 2017 and I started my only fans in the fall of 2019. So it was two years. 
And that two years was very much what I call my Elsa journey, me stepping into stepping into the unknown, hearing that voice that kept beckoning me. And I thought I was crazy and yet it wouldn't go away. And so I was willing to be brave and follow that voice. And I found that it led me all the way home. Um, so yeah, it was a two year journey of unlearning and releasing anything that did not serve me. And I, during those two years, I decided I no longer want to live according to shoulds, oughts, and supposed tos. I want to live based a life on desire, deep, soulful desire, not surfacey desire, soulful desire, being true to who I am so that my insides match my outsides, so that who I am is integrated, no longer fragmented. And that naturally led me to coming home to him, who I am, which is a very sexual person and a very generous person. I love to give in all kinds of ways. Um, as I shared in an interview last week, I love to share my money, my boobies, and my time. Like I love sharing all of me and all the ways that feels good to me. And it's been incredibly healing. Yeah, I love that. My money, my boobies, and my time. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, so the the self-acceptance and the self-forgiveness and the self-awareness. I know that um, there's the boundaries we set with other people. And then there's the, the sort of like inward journey. And for example, I have, you know, male clients who feel like they're too much, like I want too much or I'm too sexual or they have what they feel is a problematic relationship with porn, mm -hmm. um, things like that. And I'm wondering when you were doing your letting go, how did you come to self-acceptance regardless of others, but just, this is actually, I'm actually deeply sexual being. And how does that make me, how, how did that work for you? Did it, I'm just, I'm wondering, and the self-acceptance part, not necessarily boundaries with others. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. First, I just have to say for the, those of you men and other genders who have a super high sex drive and think like you're too much, you'll never find someone. This is why people like me exist. I'm the exact same way. I have a huge, huge sex drive, what we would typically associate with like men. Um, and I have been looking for someone who can match my drive. So please know there's people like us out here who exist, who will be so happy to participate in as much sex as you want to have. So with that said, yeah, I had a lot of um, self healing and loving to do because of that. I'm very sexual. Um, I'm the kind of person who has sex on the first date. And there's a lot of judgment around that, especially for women, like women of worth and value weight, you know, and it's like, but that's how I'm wired. If I connect, I'm, I'm a giver and I'm a lover and to delay it out feels like a performance to me. And, and I'm a very authentic soul. And so I just think it's so important that we honor our wiring and what feels right for us, which is different from every person. And that's the beauty. There is no script to follow. There are no rules on your libido. Like you get to define you and your life and your relationships and your sex and your sex drive and realizing or remembering that all of you is good. Your sex drive is good. Your hunger to like conquer is good. Like we can channel all of that into such good shit. If we can learn to stop being afraid of it and become one with it and feel safe with our power. I feel very powerful all of the time. I feel powerful in my sex work. I feel powerful in my life coaching. I feel powerful in my TV interviews or podcast interviews, like I feel powerful and I no longer am afraid of it. And I know how to work with it and channel it. Same thing is available to you. 
Yeah, I love that, especially the the channeling it, because I think that for a lot of the men that I work with, they are afraid of their sex drive or their sexuality because they don't want to make someone else feel uncomfortable, right? They're like, oh, if I'm too much or I'm too forward or I'm too direct or I'm too sexual, she'll feel unsafe or he'll feel unsafe. The other person will feel unsafe or like I'm, <clears throat> I'm overpowering or I'm overwhelming. And I think a lot of, in actuality, when we are right with our sexuality, we're a lot less likely to be, to be like that. Right. I was just talking to someone the other day about cheating and infidelity and the, the experience of that and the drive to cheat or to, to be unfaithful often stems from, you're not being honest with yourself about your wants and needs and let alone your partner. And now you're going outside the marriage to get a need met that should have been addressed between the two of you. And it, and there is an element of betrayal there. There's also an element of not knowing yourself. Like you said, not owning your power, not owning your, your full and whole self. And so feeling like fragmented, like this is acceptable over here, but not over here. Or I feel, for example, trapped in a sexless marriage. And I don't feel capable of addressing that directly in the marriage of this isn't working. What's happening isn't working. I need something different instead of having the hard conversation and actually dealing with all the repercussions, which are many and varied, especially if there are children involved, I'll just go over here in secret and, and, and get a need met. And then everything else is worse after that, right? Like the, it doesn't actually help anything because the guilt and the shame sets in. And then, then the person finds out and it's the whole mess instead of okay, what's happening in my sex and love life right now is not working, right? That's often where our clients come in of this, whatever's happening in my sex and love life isn't working, but I'm not exactly sure how to get to get to the next thing. Like I've, I've identified it's not working, but I feel stuck or trapped and I'm not clear on how to get to the next thing. So for you, you know, OnlyFans was, was one of, was the next thing. And um, when you started it, I'm curious if you, you know, one of the things I really liked, cause I heard you on Holly Randall's podcast. One of the things I really loved was you have an only fans and you also coach new only fans, um, uh, participants or uh, stars, basically. Creators. <laughs> and, um, one thing I loved that you said was some, let's say women that you work with will come and be like, well, I have to show my pussy right away because that's, what's expected. And you say, well, let's slow down. You know, is that your authentic expression? right now or not instead of just, well, I feel like I have to do this thing. It's almost another version of the good girl or trying to meet someone else's expectations instead of slowing down and actually saying, what is my authentic desire of expression at this time? So I'm curious when you started your OnlyFans, what was your authentic expression and how did that sort of evolve to where you are now? Yes. Okay. So I wanted to like go back real quick because I wanted to give people hope um, for those who feel stuck and feel like things are never going to change. So um, in my marriage of 12 years, I never was given an orgasm. And as a very sexual being, a my bitterness just kept increasing exponentially every year. Um, and thought this was my lot in life. And didn't realize until later, I thought I was broken. There must be something wrong. We would try sometimes. And I just, 
there was pressure. There was only a few minutes invested and it just wasn't enough for me to ever get off. And I can get off all the time by myself. Right. And this is even interesting about religion and about not being educated. I didn't know until after I was married, what an orgasm was because all I knew was based on media was women are on their back, arched screaming at the top of their lungs. And I usually come on my tummy and I'm deathly silent. So I just thought, oh, this just feels good. But I had no idea that's actually an orgasm, what my orgasm was, right? This is how disconnected I was from my body. So to be that disconnected and to then not be able to tell my partner how to give me an orgasm or have not enough investment on their side, it just led to this 12 years of no um, orgasms. And I would always have to take care of myself at night by myself, secretly under cover covers, being terrified of being caught, though I think my ex would have been fine. I just had all this shame that something's wrong with me. I can't have, I can't come during sex. So anyway, there was part of me that said, this is my lot stay because this person's good for you in a million other ways. But there was something in me was like, sex is too important to me. Sex is a really core value to who Nicole Mitchell is. And I have three little kids. I'm, I was absolutely terrified to imagine life divorced, right? That was never the plan. But we had a lot of hard conversations and we ended up getting divorced. And I went on this dating spree. And even in all these like one night stands, and sometimes I'd have sex a few times with them, I still never had an orgasm. So again, I just thought, okay, more confirmation, I'm broken. And the only way for Nicole to get off is she has to take care of herself, which is fine. But God, I would love for someone who could do that to me, right? And then I remember I had shared this all with someone who's just a friend, all the stuff, like everything I was going through, everything I was learning, I process all my dates with him. Um, and then eventually we had this connection and we ended up having sex one night and it was amazing, incredible, mind blowing. And we continued to have sex. And one of those times without even trying, I had my first orgasm from someone during sex. And I like, it was so shocking and beautiful. I just started bawling. And I was surprised at the words that kept coming in my mouth. The words that kept coming out were, Oh my God, I'm not broken. Oh my God, I'm not broken. Oh my God, I'm broken. And he just held me as I cried. And it was the most holy and sacred moment where I realized maybe I wasn't broken. I just needed certain things, certain enough time and healing and freedom and permission, and even a divorce to figure out who I am and come home to myself. So for whoever is listening, wherever you are, your journey, not saying divorce is required. What I'm saying is your desire for what you want. Isn't crazy. It isn't wrong. It isn't bad. And I truly believe you get to have them fulfilled one way or another. And it might require the very, very hard work of having those conversations with your partner and seeing where that can lead to. Maybe it involves getting professional help. Maybe it involves utilizing sex toys or a sex coach. There's all kinds of ways to come home to your desires and have them fulfilled. But what I don't want you to do is to convince yourself you are stuck where you are and it will never change. Yeah, I really want to kind of underline that because I've also seen clients go from feeling stuck and trapped to understanding that their desire for a healthy sex life is sacred. And I think it's, I think there are a lot of relationships where it's like, well, everything else is working. Why can't you just deal with this? Right. Everything else is good. We co-parent really well together. We do all these things. Why can't you just, why can't this be enough? Why is sex so important to you? Why do you make it mean so much? What there, I think there's, what I hear from a lot of men is the, 
the denigration around God, you're so obsessed with sex. You think about it all the time. You're, you're, you know, just all of that kind of diminishing of the reality, which is sexuality is your life force and it's, it's your chi, right? It's your, it's your drive. It's, it's more than just this thing on the side. And I think that our society has really weird beliefs around sex. Some, you know, we're Judeo-Christian culture. That's the origin of, of a lot of the, the ethos. And, and so there's the weird messages about it, which I think are even more intense if you come from a religious background. So you're, you're sort of predisposed to be like, right, you're right, right. There's other things that are more important, you know, love and family. And, but it's like sacred sexuality, the relationship, whatever genitalia you have, it doesn't matter, but that, that fire, that passion, that drive, that connection, that intimacy is, is meaningful. It's what, it's what is different about that relationship in a person's life. Lovership is different from other relationships and it creates a different kind of bond between two people. So it does matter. It is important. It, it, you know, it's like, I think that was so brave of you to have those difficult conversations and what, what an inspiration to people listening, because you kind of lived through that of feeling like it was impossible and you were trapped to okay, something's got to change. This is not, this is not what, this is not how I want the rest of my life to be. This isn't what I want for my forever. This, I want more. And that's so, um, that's how evolution happens. The, I want more, this isn't enough is, is the drive for how do I do this, right? What is the next step in the evolution? And, um, I'm just curious timeline wise with when did you start your OnlyFans after your divorce or how did that work? Okay. Yeah. I started it before with his full support. And that was a way for me to channel that sexual energy because I wasn't getting it in this container, but this was another way for me to express it and have it like be reciprocal. It was really beautiful. Um, God, there was something you said that really resonated. Oh, life force. You know, it's really interesting is once I honored my wiring, my sexuality, my desires, which for my journey included getting a divorce, everything flourished afterwards my income, my business, my media, my publicity, everything, my dating life, everything exponentially improved where I just keep looking back to Nicole of a year ago or two years ago, honey, it's worth it. It is so worth it. Having those hard conversations, doing the hard things, it's going to pay off a hundredfold. Um, but yeah, I started it with his full permission and approval, which was awesome. And then found how much I really loved it and really wanted to grow it, but it was still kind of holding back because again, I'm still trying to be that good wife. Um, what does it look like to be a free woman? Who's also trying to be a good wife. You, it's hard. Um, and realized I wanted to go further and the further I went, the more uncomfortable he became. And that was part of many conversations we had about who are we becoming? What do we want? And what decisions are we going to make from here? I think that's a, we can have a whole other podcast on that, which we are going to start to wrap up here, but I'm, I'm very interested in that because that, that question of being openly sexual and being available and sort of out in the world, you know, and being in partnership, how does that work? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think that that feels relevant for, for someone like me as well. And the work that I do not in exactly the same way, but it's something that I think about because I'm not in committed partnership at the moment, but it's sort of like, well, how does that, how does that work? Like in, in reality, how do I be all of who I am and be 
in partnership. And I think ultimately um, it does feel like when you meet a new partner now, you are who you are, right? So let's say he he was on your OnlyFans page. He already knows who you are in your more authentic, full expression. And so there's a sort of a natural meeting versus what I've seen witnessed in clients repeatedly is when you have a partnership where one person's growing and one person's not growing as much or in the same direction, man, it's really hard to have that. <laughs> it's really hard to have that work. And, and especially I think around these questions of sexuality, we, we all have such deep programming around that, that a man might think he's open. And then when it really gets down to it, it's like, nope, actually I feel uncomfortable with that. Like, <laughs> or, or he says he's comfortable with it, but you can feel the tension in your body. You're like, Ooh, yeah, no, this isn't working. Um, that's, I would, yeah, love to have you back to just talk about that part because it feels, um, it feels edgy. It feels edgy. I think a lot of couples keep their sexuality contained within their container and that seems to work. But for those that are more expressed, how does that actually, how does that actually work? You know? Yes. I, gosh, I'm like, yes, we have to have many conversations because I just want so many people to, to have the power to to get the, to have the life they want, to get the results they want. And who I was in my early twenties was a vastly, vastly different person than who I am today. And I think it's, I just didn't think it was, it's realistic for me and people like me to adhere myself to standards that were set 15 years ago. That was from a very specific context, very specific programming, very specific time. And since then I've evolved, I've unlearned, I've become, And now I had to set a new standard and new values and new rules, um, paradigms for myself and my future. And I had to, I had to release a lot. And for me was the recently releasing of my marriage, releasing old friendships, releasing family members. Like I, as, as Glennon Doyle says, I was willing to betray anyone else's expectations of me before I would ever betray myself again. I was tired of denying myself for the sake of the other Because what's the point of my existence if all I do is deny, deny, deny. And I came to home to this belief that my desires, as we've talked about, are sacred. And there's beauty there. There's power. There's life force there. And the more I tap into and channel that and honor that, the better my life gets. But it does require, if you're partnered with someone, a lot of hard conversations, but it's worth it. Who knows what freedom you'll find. Maybe you'll find that freedom together. Maybe you'll find that freedom separate, but you'll, you'll find the freedom. And I want you to have that. Yeah. And I really, I I love to your, your openness around sexuality, being queer yourself. You know, I've had multiple, multiple clients who are queer, who are, you know, men that identify as queer or just like lots of different things and lots of different kinds of genitalia. (laughs) And that's great. Um, and I, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how that part has expressed itself in your work or in your life. Like, I'm, I'm just wondering, has that, was that a big part of your journey in terms of opening up sexually? Um, and, and how has that sort of affected your OnlyFans? Yeah. When I realized my sexuality, my pansexuality, um, in my early thirties, I thought if I didn't realize this core part of who I am, 
what else do I think I know that I don't actually know? So that was actually the turning point in my life. And people are like, what was the moment? That was the moment. Really realizing I was queer. How can I be third in my thirties, a grown ass adult and not even know my own sexuality? That is how disconnected I was conditioned to be in our society. <clears throat> so the more I came home to myself, the more I realized these desires I had, such as expressing myself sexually, leading me to create OnlyFans. And I was inspired to create OnlyFans because I saw other women who were married, who were moms, who were thriving in their relationships and doing what they love on the side on OnlyFans. And so they were a living demonstration of what was possible. And I love that I now get to be that living demonstration of others that you get to be highly successful and be sexy. You get to be risque and be respected. You get to be a model and a mother. You get to have it all. We do not have to choose. That's one of the greatest lies of the patriarchy is that you can only have one or the other. I believe we get to have it all. And so now I turned to OnlyFans as just an outlet to channel my sexual energy in a way that felt safe to me. I'm not in a club. I'm not at a bar, which those things are fine, but I feel much safer as a feminine being behind camera in my room, at my hours, on my schedule, my rates, I have all the control. That feels really safe for me as a creator. And the more I did it, the more I loved it. And I've also obviously gone to be really successful and lucrative with it. Yeah, I love that. And I also love that you're mentoring yeah. other people. There's something really sweet about that of, of as someone who's worked with a number of mentors now that you are a mentor. And I just, I love that. And I, again, came back to that it just really struck me of <laughs> women that come to work with you. They're like, well, I have to show my pussy right away. So, you know, maybe I'll get a Brazilian and you're like, whoa, let's slow down. <laughs> like talk about what you're, what you're wanting out of this and where, where you authentically feel comfortable in your body going. And I think that's a good, uh, that maps sometimes to often, um, sex as well. Right. Where I think that there are, there are women who feel like, well, I have to go all the way so that he won't, he won't leave or there's so many options for him on dating sites. I have to put out right away there. This still exists. This form of thinking definitely still exists versus what are you actually wanting? What is your body actually comfortable with? You know, let's just go there. <laughs> and then, Listen, people. Yes. And this, some is, people, like, this yeah. is your new mantra. People, your new mantra is I'm a catch. I'm a prize. I am the whole damn vibe. All right. That is by Amanda Francis. And I love that energy because I don't care how many options there are out in the world. There's only one Nicole Mitchell. You can date as many other women as you want. You'll never find a woman like me. Like that is just how certain of I, I am of my unique component. So what I want for you women, but for any human is to have this confidence of like, you are such a prize. You are worthy of being honored. And what I've loved about OnlyFans is it's actually been a great place playground to explore my boundaries and articulate my boundaries because my fans can ask for custom content. They can ask me anything. And then I have this, you know, option presented to me and I feel into it. Does this feel good to me? Does this feel safe to me? Is this something I want to like be known for, not be known for? And I, I try it on and then I'm very honest. I'll be like, oh my gosh, yes, I'd love to. Or like, oh, I've never done this before. I think I want to try it. Or I say, I don't feel comfortable making that. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Is there something else I can make you? And what I have found in the years I've been doing this, men, but people in general, they want authenticity. They want a person who knows their worth, knows their value, and would never want you to do anything you don't actually want to do. They find that the biggest turnoff. It's the underdeveloped, 
under evolved humans who think like, well, you owe it to me, give it all to me. My fans are very protective of me. They're always like, don't you dare do anything you don't want to do. When I had my boob surgery, they were like, don't you dare come back on here until you're fully healed. We're fine. We don't need anything. Like they look out for me and you are worthy of those kind of friends, those kind of fans, those kind of lovers who honor your boundaries and who honor you as a whole person and want the best for you. Yeah. I really like that part that you mentioned of, um, the, just the negotiation. I was just talking, I'm going to be running a workshop on sexuality and boundaries in a few weeks. And we were talking through the exercises and there's one on negotiation. Right. And, you know, I think this is something that we, we struggle with around. I want this from you, right. In, in partnership or in relationship, I want to do this sexual thing. And we're so afraid that they're going to be comfortable with it, that we will, often, um, deny ourselves even asking or feeling worthy of asking because we don't want to make the other person feel uncomfortable. And there's also on the other side, the sort of defensive, like, Oh, I'm not ready for that. Instead of like, Oh, tell me what you love about that. I want to, I want to understand more. And so even if you're not available for the act itself, it can be, it can sort of like lead to closeness. If you're actually open to, um, yeah, hearing more about what it is that they love about that and, and, and still maintaining your boundaries of I'm not available for that. And I love that you asked. I love that. I see whether it's a fan on OnlyFans or a lover asking for what they want, uh, or sharing their fantasy or their fetish or the kink to me, that's vulnerability. And I honor that so deeply, especially as a creator where these People message me with things that they want me to do for them. And I could, they could easily be mocked for it. I now know their most intimate desire and I could ruin them over that. I, but I don't, that is sacred, sacred. I love that A, they know themselves well enough and B, they feel safe enough to share that with me because it shows their confidence and courage, but also shows like the space I create where you are welcome here. Your fears and your fetishes are welcome. We can talk about your kids and your kinks it's really sacred. So when your partner opens up to you or you open up to your partner, it's really beautiful precisely because it's vulnerable. And so being willing when your partner shares something that makes you feel uncomfortable, pause for a moment and recognize the beauty and their vulnerability. And even sharing that to your partner, if you're afraid to come out to your partner with something, share that, Hey, I have this thing I want to share with you, but I'm really nervous. And I just need to know, like, like, it's safe for me to share this with you and like set the ground instead of coming out the gate. Like I want to have a foursome and like freaking them out or whatever. Like there's ways you can engage with your partner, honor their vulnerability, feel safe enough to share your vulnerability. And like you said, become closer because of it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that the setting of the stage. I'm a big fan of that. (laughs) I was like, okay, just prepping you. This is an, this is an important conversation. (laughs) Like I'm going to share some of my heart now, instead of just, you know, starting it in the kitchen and not kind of having, having the way paved for, this is something hard for me to share. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's it's an important moment. So, um, yeah. So as we wrap up here, um, I'm just wondering if you have any advice for people that are maybe a little bit earlier on the journey, they feel, um, like religion is still, um, informing their sexuality. They're still sort of emerging from religion trauma. What advice would you give them to get, to get right and to get whole 
with themselves, not necessarily with a partner, but just with themselves of, yeah, this is me. This is my drive. These are my urges. This is, this is part of me. Yes. I love that. I'm a big believer in support and having some kind of support in your life. So for me, part of my journey has been hiring life coaches who could reflect back to me, my wholeness and my worthiness. When I'd start losing my shit or getting emotional, getting afraid, they get me back in my power and get me grounded. And there's someone having that solid anchor in my evolving, in my becoming, in my rising that made it so much smoother and easier and better than if I had gone at it alone. So please don't go at it alone. This is why even on my own social media, I post content for free every day because I want to help people. I want to give support. I want to offer wisdom to anyone who wants it. Um, and then there's next levels, coaches or coaching and courses, but like find people that you resonate with who have what you have, who have what you want to have, listen to them, learn from them. Like you said, I'm mentoring because I want to make the way smoother for as many people as possible to make your own becoming faster and smoother than it was for mine. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, don't go at it alone. We got you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So speaking of social media, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more and maybe working with you? Yes, I'm on all the social medias, but you can go to my website, nicolemitchell.com, and that'll link you to everything. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. I'm the most active on Facebook and Instagram. Please say hi. If you hear this, please DM me. I check my DMs every day um, and let me know how this impacted you or just let me know you're here and come say hi. I love to make new friends. Perfect. Thank you. Hey guys, Nicole talked about mentorship in this episode. And I just wanted to say, if you've ever been curious about being mentored by me and my co-coach, Jason Lang, a great thing to do is to take our free training, which is available at evolutionary.men slash training. It's called how to take control of your love life. And it includes a bunch of information that goes a bit deeper than the podcast. So if you've been curious about our work together or whether we might be a good fit for you, it's a great way to get a sense of us and what we teach. So again, you can go to evolutionary.men slash training to get access to that for free.